turn back to Isaiah 40, it would be helpful tonight. As we said this morning, none of us know what 2023 holds for us. It may be a year of prosperity for some, or a year of loss and pain, but as we said this morning, more likely it will be a mixture of both. As believers tonight, in the truthfulness of God's word and of the Father's unfluctuating love to his people, we need to reassure ourselves again tonight that in all things, in all things, God is at work for the good of those who love him. He has no bad intention towards his church, only good. Here we come to Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet who preached to a people who should have been living for the glory of God, who should have been striving every day to honour his name in the nations around. But they weren't. They had turned from God, professing to follow him. They had become carnal and selfish. And though they were still going through the rituals and the motions of religion and sacrifice, though they were singing praise songs to God, yet their lives were far, far from what they ought to have been. So God says to them way back in chapter one, he says, our sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption, you have forsaken the Lord. You have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned your back on him. These were God's people <coughs> saying we love God and yet had gone so far that God says, you are a sinful nation. You are not what you ought to be. And so Isaiah, throughout the book, he lays out the terrible consequences that result from such an ungodly way of life. He says later on, your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. God was allowing the world to destroy his own people. The world was tearing God's people apart. And it was all because God says, I am doing this through them. I am allowing this. Strange to us, perhaps. But the reason, his motivation for allowing the world to overcome his people and to tear them apart, to scatter them abroad to the nations. His motivation was, he loved them. He loved them too much to let them continue in this sinful pattern of life. He wanted them to listen to his warnings and to his promises and to return to him in repentance and renewed faith. He wanted them to, to be scattered to the nations and then to see the emptiness of the world and say there's nothing out there for me I'm going back to God I want to live for him we read throughout scripture that the discipline even the discipline of God's people is for the good of his people it's because he loves his people he wants us to show the emptiness of the world and the filling and the joy that is to be found in him but he does this in Isaiah and yet the people continue this ongoing pattern of rejection and rebellion and sin. And they don't say, well, I see the emptiness now. I return and love God. They just 
carry on. And so by the end of Isaiah 39, God carries out the ultimate discipline on his own people. He sends them into exile. He says, no longer can you live in Jerusalem. The place that you've built with blood, sweat and tears. The place where your family has settled down and put down roots for many generations. You can't stay there. I'm sending you off to Babylon. Nothing worse could have been imagined by the Jewish nation. Because it was in Jerusalem, not only where their home life was, where their temple was. It was the place where God had been with them. It's the place where they met with the living God. And so by sending them away, God is saying, you can't be near me anymore. It's like a parent who's saying to the child, you go to your room. Go away from my presence. Go think about what you've done. You go far from me. To be sent from Jerusalem was to lose not only homes, and to be scattered from family and friends, but to lose the presence of God himself. And so at the end of chapter 39, it all seems hopeless, dark, lonely, everything is lost. But even in this extreme moment of discipline, the Heavenly Father cannot resist sending a word of hope to them. He says, yes, I discipline you. Yes, I scatter you. Yes, you lose everything. But I want you to know I love you. There's hope to be found. The promise of light to a people walking in darkness. Words of healing to the heartbroken heartbroken by their unimaginable distance from their home. God comes in chapter 40. The word of Isaiah the prophet comes to them in the Babylonian exile. And what a word it is. And I want this to be a word for us as we go out tonight, into the week, into the year, into the unknown, for this to be a word in whatever our circumstances, however far we may have fallen as God's people, whatever we will face in our workplace, in our home lives, in the church life this coming year, whether we're walking faithfully with God, or whether there's a present and real distance between us, whether we feel on top of the mountain at the moment or down in the valley, this word is a word of grace to us, my Heavenly Father. Isaiah 40 tells God's people four vital truths to remind them in a time of uncertainty and darkness. The first is this. He tells them in verses 1 to 5, find your hope and comfort in Christ. Find your hope and comfort in Christ. God's people here, they're going through the toughest of times of exile. What will be the first thing God tells them? Verses 1 to 5, comfort. Yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem. Cry out to her that her warfare is ended. Then further down, there's a voice going to come. Crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. And the result, verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Notice how tenderly. He speaks to his rebellious people. 
even though they're disciplined, even though they're exiled, because of their consistent, unrepentant way of life, yet, though spiritually they're in a barren wilderness, they're in a desert with no, not even a mirage of spirituality, no oasis of godliness, the prophet comes and he says, speak tenderly to her. This is my people. She is mine. I am her God. And though his people are still on the run, God is saying, I seek to win your heart back to me, not by just by rebuke, not just by hard words, not just by exile, but I seek you, I seek to win you back through tenderness and a gentle call, the call of grace, comfort my people. Christ will come and rescue you. Isn't it wonderful how God doesn't treat his people like robots or like a, a switch? He just clicks us on and off at will. And we're just citizens who are ordered about by, by the king. He treats his church like a lover to be won back when we are falling away. When we are straying to other gods, other idols, to the world, giving ourselves to everything but him, he, he woos us back. He gently calls us to himself. He says, look, you may be in the desert spiritually, but I'm going to send a voice into that desert. And he is going to make a way for the king to come back and enter into his people, his church, once more. Their hope was not trying to find their way back from Babylon down into Jerusalem, trying to work their way back to their homeland. God doesn't say, come back to me. First of all, he says, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to meet you where you are, outside the city, outside of Jerusalem, in the far off land, in the desert. I'm going to send a voice. He's going to call in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. There's a greater message. The message of Isaiah in many ways is a message of rebuke, strong words, but it's also a message of gentleness. The king is going to come. He's going to rescue you. Even though they're far away because that's what they deserve. The king is going to cross land and sea and desert to reach them. He will cross the most dangerous of territories and he will come down to them where they are. He say, here I am. I've come to love you. I've come to woo you. I've come to win you back. And once he has done his job, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Christ will come, says Isaiah. Jesus will enter his world. He will be the hope of the nations, the peace and salvation of his own people. It wouldn't be for another 700 years after this prophecy that a strange man would come eating wild honey, locusts, dressed weirdly, walking in a desert. And the first words he would say in John 1.23, in fulfillment of the words of Isaiah, he would say, I am the voice calling in the desert, make straight the way of the Lord. 700 years from Isaiah 40 until the promise is fulfilled and the glory of the Lord is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. 700 years. 
But as we're told later in the Bible, it's 700 years, not because God is slow in fulfilling his promises, but because he's patient with his people, giving them opportunity to repent and turn back to him. God is not slow, he's patient. When we accuse him and say, you don't care about us, you promised this, and you're not giving it to us, we ask ourselves why. Because of his grace to us, because of his love and mercy to us. And so Isaiah is saying that it is looking to Christ that brings hope and comfort in seemingly impossible, difficult circumstances, times of grief, times of pain, times of backsliding and self-centeredness, times which look bleak in human terms, God comes as his comfort. Comfort my people, speak tenderly to them of Christ. So often, <coughs> even as God's people, we can fear the arrival of the king. I remember as a boy, one of the great motivations for living spiritually was Christ can see everything you do and he's going to hold you to account. It's true. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, holding the good and the evil. He's with you wherever you are. He's going to judge you. And that is true. The words of Isaiah 40 are, the Lord can see everything you do. He's going to comfort you by his grace. And he's going to draw near to you as well. There, you don't need to fear the arrival of the king because his arrival means your salvation, means your rescue, your hope. We may worry that God will expose our sins and our worldliness and our apathy, so we fear his coming. And yes, he will do that. But the coming of Christ 2,000 years ago not only exposed the darkness, but it brought light to the darkness. It not only told us and showed us how evil we all are, it brought the salvation of the gospel with it as well. And so these two words come in Isaiah, the words of rebuke to the backsliding, to the far off, to the sinful people of God. You've gone astray. You will be disciplined. But I love you. I'll come to you and I'll meet with you by my love. Interesting, isn't it? You'd think Isaiah 40, if you read Isaiah 1 to 39, you'd say Isaiah 40 should begin with warn, warn my people. Because the glory of the Lord will be revealed. You're in trouble. Real trouble. There's no hope for you. But it's not. It's comfort. Comfort, my people. Because the glory of the Lord will be seen in Jesus Christ. He'll be your salvation. It's a real lesson here for us as we go into this new year. On how we talk to one another in our weaknesses and sinfulness. When we talk to those who are backsliding and wandering away and giving themselves to sin, it is easy to go straight in, bullet again, warn, warn, warn. And there is a reason and a time for that. But there's also a time to come in and say, look, you are far from God. The way you are living is shocking. But I've got comfort and hope for you. Jesus Christ has died. He has come into the world not to condemn you, but to rescue you from the sorry state you're in. And I want to bring the comfort of the gospel to your backsliding ways. 
how careful we ought to be, not only to urge one another in repentance, but to bring in that it's not just what we do and how we must turn, and how we must repent and how we must stop sin. It's not just for that, it's also about Christ is the great hope here. Christ will come to you and give you the strength to repent. So, firstly, Isaiah says, find your hope and your comfort in Christ. Secondly, this year, he'll tell us, trust the enduring word of God. You see that in verses 6 to 8? The voice said, cry out. What, what am I going to cry out? What am I going to tell the people who are wandering, whose foundation has fallen to pieces, who whose lives are teetering on the edge. They're moving towards death in the far off land. What shall I tell them? Tell them this. All flesh is grass. Well, it's loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass with this, yes. The flower fades, yes. Because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. And yes, the people are grass and the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Here is hope given in changeable times, times of confusion and worry and difficulty, when things seem to be going all wrong in our lives, when the doctor comes and gives us a horrific diagnosis. We sit in that surgery looking to the doctor's face and we say, there, where do I go from here? Well, we face circumstances and problems. I, I never deal with this. My life is finished. It's all hopeless. I can't move on beyond this. It's the end. We're confused. And as a consequence, we might doubt God's love. We might say, I give it all up. I'm not going to follow him anymore. We doubt the faithfulness of our Father in heaven. And the reliability of his words, Isaiah tells us, don't be tempted to think that. Yes, your life is at an end, maybe. Yes, the flesh is going to die and be buried. Yes, the grass will be blown away in the wind. But if you base your life on the word of God, the promises of heaven, then it will be secure, even if you are blown away, because you will be eternally secure. In the promises of the word of God. We are guaranteed, without any sense of pessimism this year, things will go wrong. It just will. Things will change, often not for the better. Things will break. Hair will grow grayer. We will suffer pain and loss. There will be times of extreme confusion. Living in this fallen world, we shouldn't be surprised at that. Grass withers, flowers do fade. But in these moments of decay, do not doubt the truthfulness of the promises of God to you. You are his child. He has never promised something that he cannot and will not keep. In these moments, as you look in the mirror, see the gray hairs and say, yes, my life is changing. The word of our God, do as forever. My life is safe in his hands, on his promises. And if you think, well, you can't compare my problems to grass and 
flowers. Yeah, of course they fade, but my problems are huge. Well, listen to this, what Jesus says in Matthew 24. Heaven and earth will pass away, he says. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word shall never pass away. The problems are not to be compared to heaven and earth. You can look at those and say, yes, everything will fall apart, but the word of the Lord endures forever, and I trust it. As his children, dearly loved by him, as a kingdom of priests, rule over by the king of kings, nothing can change our safe position promised in the word of God, that he is working all things out for the good of his people. Yes, suffering, death, nakedness, famine, and sword, all of those things is working out for our good. We are his. He is ours. And his promises will not fail, for his word endures forever. And then thirdly, verses 9 to 26, it encourages us this year to be confident in our great gods. Be confident in your great gods. Verses 9 to 26, the Lord reminds Israel to be confident in the Lord. And then he tells them why they can be. Not just, oh, trust God. That's helpful. He tells them the reason why. And he introduces this in verse 9 by saying to his people, look, you're in a far off land, but behold your God. Look and see, he's still there. He's still on the throne. You're far from him, but he's not far from you. Who is this God who we can trust this year? What is his character? What is his nature? Why is he trustworthy? Is he able to keep what he promised? Yes, says Isaiah. In verse 10, he's the sovereign and all-powerful God. In verse 11, he's the shepherd who gathers his lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. In verse 12, he's the creator and sustainer of life. In verses 13 and 14, he's the one who knows all things from beginning to end. In verses 15 to 17, he is greater and more powerful than the greatest nations and empires. And in verses 18 to 20, he is simply incomparable. Then in verses 21 to 26, we're reminded that he is in control. He's in control. Do you not know? Have you not heard? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. To whom will we compare him? Who is his equal? Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Who created everything you see? The point that is being made so forcibly here is you can trust the Lord. Not because of some vague notions in your head, not because somebody somewhere said trust in the Lord, but because of his unchanging, powerful, grace-filled, caring, shepherding, Eternal, incomparable character. You can trust him. You can trust him. Stop wobbling. Stop wavering and doubting him. Stop going from one thing to another, from the world back to the church, and the church back to the world. Whatever is distracting you or causing you fear tonight, speak to yourself and say, Behold your God. Behold your God. Look at him again. You've lost that sense. 
This is who I believe in. This is who my confidence is based in. He's trustworthy. He loves me. Behold your God, Isaiah tells us. It's like reminding yourself in the middle of a hurricane. You're in the middle of a hurricane in America or whatever. You run down to the basement and oh, everything's going to blow apart. And then you remind yourself, no. That hurricane foundation's been in. My house is safe because of what the past has been, what has been done in the past. If we look to our circumstances, if we wish them to always be somehow better than they presently are, I will trust God if my circumstances are better. I will follow him if this and if that, then we will never follow him, we will never trust him. If we look to ourselves, or if we wish we could be strong enough to endure, we have eyes on the wrong person. Behold, behold, behold your God. He's a strong foundation. He is trustworthy. See and believe again in his sufficiency this coming year. And then fourthly, which is 27 to 31, there is one more aspect of God that we must consider. And it's this, says verses 27 to 31, our God is unable to grow tired in his pursuit of us or in his care of us. So fourthly, receive strength from your unfainting God. Receive strength this year from your unfainting God. Verses 28 to 31. Have you not heard? Have you not known? Everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. And the youth shall faint and be weary. And the young men shall utterly fall, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. When you're young, you say, I've got enough strength to follow God. I've got enough ambition, enough drive. No, sometimes I know you don't. Even you, with all your power and uh, vigor, even you will fall. God is working around the clock to hold you, young and old, strong and weak, well and sick. He is working around the clock to hold you and he will not let you go. He will not grow weary and say, I can't do it anymore. He won't. You do not weary him. You do not make God feel like quitting on you. You don't. He's a fountain of strength to his people. He's an unfailing source of goodness to each one of us. We look at ourselves and say, oh, of all people, I make God sick and tired. You don't. You don't. And he is there upholding you, holding you up, giving you strength, giving you endurance to survive this year, but not only to survive, to thrive and to grow, to beat those old sins, and to, to be more like Christ. He's giving you strength 
so that you will grow in grace, knowledge of the truth, and likeness to Christ, and to do what God has called us to do. Maybe this last year you've wondered to yourself, I not even do the simplest tasks of the day, let alone the massive things God is calling me to. I, who am I? I have no strength to do this. But be sure of this, that if he has called you to a task, he will give you the gifts for that task. And then he'll give you the strength and the endurance for that work that he has called you to do because he gives strength to the weak and he increases the power of the weak. The exiled people of Israel needed to be reminded of this. Every one of us, like them, gets worn out with life. There they are sitting in Babylon. God can't hold me. God can't bring me back. God has lost sense of desire for me. No, says the Lord, I don't have grown weary of you yet. Weary of you yet. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring the king to you. Every one of us gets worn out with life. The encouragement here is to look by faith to the God of heaven. Say to him, pour out some of your copious supplies of strength freshly upon my head today for this year. Let me begin each day in your strength, your ability, and I will trust you as you go on working in me. We take our eyes off him and we begin to look inside of ourselves and I'm young enough, I'm strong enough, I can hold on enough. If we look inwards, we will soon feel worn out. We'll soon say to ourselves, I'm unable to go on in the Christian walk. We've taken our eyes off the only one who is unfailing and strong. This is the message God wants us to hear this year as we begin. Find your hope, your comfort in Christ. Trust the enduring word of God. Be confident in your great God. And receive strength from your unstoppable fountain of strength. Your God in heaven. For those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. And I'm going to close this evening with a hymn. It's kind of a Christmas hymn, but it's... it's kind of reflect some of the wonder that God's people must have felt back then. Uh, why would he love them? He's just disciplined them, he's just sent them off in the far off land, and yet still loves them. <coughs> and there's a wonder to that. As we look at our own lives and say, why? Why would the Lord sustain me? Why would he still love me after all I've done, all I've failed to do? So this hymn reflects that. I cannot tell. Why he who angels worship should set his love upon the sons of men. For why a shepherd he should seek the wanderers to bring them back they know not how or when. But this I know. They, this I know, that he was born of Mary. When Bethlehem's manger was his only home and that he lived at Nazareth and laboured. So the saviour, saviour of the world has come. That's Isaiah 14. I don't know why he's doing this, but he is speaking words of comfort to me, and he is sending the Savior and all his strength to uphold me for the year ahead. So let's stand together to sing. <coughs>